Let us pray. God, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. This week I saw a crocus. Uh, one afternoon I was out walking in the neighborhood of the church here. And, uh, and I saw a flash of bright orange color on what otherwise was a very cold and gray and wet and drab afternoon. There was actually a patch, a small patch of orange croci. Those are the first flowering, uh, blooming flowers that I've seen this year. And I saw them on, on Wednesday. I saw them on Ash Wednesday. On the day that we hear the words, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The, days, the day we're reminded of our mortality, I saw that sign of new life. And it seemed like a very fitting way to begin this Lenten season. Lent is a penitential season. It is a season for repentance, for being honest, for confessing. For lamenting the sinfulness of our lives and our world. It's a season for being truthful, which can be hard and can leave us feeling fairly pessimistic. And Lent is the season that prepares us, that leads us to Easter. It leads us to the hope of resurrection. It invites us to trust in God's promise of new life. In Lent, we hold both of those together at the same time, truthfulness and trust. That's the ambivalence of Lent. Ambivalence literally means to hold or to feel two different things deeply. It comes from two Latin roots. The first is ambi, which means both, so ambidextrous, right? You can use both hands. And the second part of the word valent comes from the Latin valencia, which means power. So, holding two things strongly. Lent is a season when we strive to be both truthful and trusting. During Lent, we're asked to be truthful about life, about what's going on with us, about what's going on in the world around us. If you look in the mirror honestly, well, I hope you see a person who's kind and caring and honest and trustworthy full of grace and mercy. But if we hold our gaze long enough, we also see our capacity to be selfish, to be self-serving. We see our capacity, or we see our tendency, perhaps, to round off the hard edges of honesty. Or maybe I'm just confessing my own sins here, I'm not sure. But all of us, I'm sure, look in the mirror and recognize that we don't always love our neighbors as ourselves. And if we look at the world around us closely, what we see are wars that are raging, a couple of which, certainly Gaza and Ukraine, were funding. We see an election looming with all of the divisiveness and a potential for violence. Every day we see more clearly the impacts of global climate change on the earth. There's plenty enough to see that's worrisome, that's wrong, and it can be hard to look at. And so there's always a temptation instead to look away or to narrow down our focus to our particular ambitions. There's always a temptation to deceive ourselves, to convince ourselves that it's not really that bad. I mean, others do stuff that's worse, and what else are we going to do anyway? There's always a temptation to trust in the power of force or manipulation or might to try to make things right. 
Well, in the reading we've just heard, um, Jesus endured temptations too. Mark's account is very brief. In Matthew and Luke, they spend a lot more verses describing what happened uh, to Jesus. In Mark's account, though, in Mark's telling of the story, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days where he is tested by Satan. He's not only tested in the wilderness, though throughout his life he will be tempted. He'll be tempted by power, by fame, by wealth. He'll be tempted to use ends to justify means. Tempted to manipulate relationships, to use God, to use people. Throughout his life, Jesus will be tempted. And at his death, he will be tempted to imagine that he's alone, that he's on his own. He'll be tempted to reject the ways of God's love, to react to his wrongful conviction with righteous, violent fury, tempted to call down 10,000 angels. Jesus faced temptations that come in living in the world the way it is. And still, still he trusted. He trusted that God would be with him. He trusted the grace, the mercy, the loving kindness, the spirit of God is working in the world to make it right and whole and holy for all who dwell therein. We called it the good news. And after the wilderness temptations, Mark tells us that Jesus went throughout Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And Jesus calls us still to repent, to turn away from what's wrong and deceptive and hurtful and unloving and sinful and to believe instead the good news, to believe that we are not alone, to believe that God is with us, to believe that God is love, and that we can learn to love one another in the same way that God loves us all. In Lent, in this ambivalent season, we're called to be truthful and to trust both at the same time because the one requires the other. We have to be truthful. We have to be honest. We have to open the vulnerable spaces of our hearts and the guarded places of our souls because that's the way the light and the life and the love of God finds its way in. That's the way it can suffuse our lives, can uh, make its way into, the, in, into our deepest self to heal and to renew and, and to transform us into the people that God has always meant us to be. Conversely, it's hard to be truthful if we don't trust. It's hard to be vulnerable if we don't feel we're safe, if we, if we feel afraid. And so the Spirit of God is calling us still to believe in the good news, to trust that God is with you, that you are not alone, to trust that God is for you, no matter if you've been told you're not good enough or you're not quite measuring up or you're never going to make it. God is for you. And if you can trust that God loves you, if we can trust that God loves us all, that God loves the whole wide world, well, that can change everything. Because it's that kind of truthful, trusting faith that draws us more and more into the kingdom that Jesus talked about, into the kingdom, into the beloved community. It's that kind of faith by which we become part of the shared life together that God intends for the whole creation. One of the ways of being truthful during Lent, one of the traditional practices of Lent, 
is fasting. So on Mardi Gras, uh, people party hardy. It's not really a very religious day anymore. But traditionally, on Mardi Gras and Fat Tuesday, people used up the rich foods that were in their pantry, the butter and the eggs and the lard and the cheese to be ready for the beginning of Lent, to be ready for Ash Wednesday, to be ready for the weeks of eating fish and fasting on certain days. Now, we don't talk about fasting much anymore, but this year, I want to encourage you to make fasting part of this season of Lent, because fasting is a way of being truthful. It's a way of paying attention to what's going on with us, to what's going on around us. And it might be giving up a meal a week or giving up uh, several meals over the course of a day or maybe giving up certain kind of foods for the season. Or maybe some people fast from social media. They get off of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Or maybe it's a carbon fast this year, not driving for a day, uh, riding your bike, learning how to use TriMet. Whatever form it takes, fasting helps us see more clearly more honestly, more truthfully. Fasting helps us see ourselves more clearly. It's a way of paying attention to what we have, to what we need, to what we value, to what we're missing. Uh, Richard Foster uh, wrote a book that, for people of my generation, perhaps was something of a minor spiritual classic. It was titled The Celebration of Discipline. I'm wondering, wondering, how many of you ever read Celebration of Discipline? Okay, mostly people over 50, it looks like. Uh, and honestly, I hadn't pulled it off my shelf for a while, but he has a chapter in there on fasting, and in it he wrote, more than any other single discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. By giving something up, we realize what has power, what holds power over us. Fasting is a way of being truthful about ourselves. What are the things that control us? Second, fasting helps us to see others more clearly. We, and most of us here, have so much that it is hard to imagine the lives of people who have so little. Fasting can be an act of empathy, an act of solidarity, and an act of action. This Lenten season, our Mennonite Action Committee is planning a collective fast as part, uh, as an act of solidarity with the people of Gaza. And as we fast, we will also pray for a ceasefire. If you're interested in being part of that collective fast, contact someone, you can contact me, or contact someone on that committee, Brenda Zuckfriesen, Paul Reed, uh, Lisa Hughes, Claire Yoder, um, Esther Esther Nelson, and Debbie Johnson are also on that committee, but they are traveling at the moment. But fasting helps us see others more clearly. It can be an act of solidarity. And then finally, fasting helps us see the presence and the provision of God in our lives. During Lent, we give up small things to be reminded that we are loved even if we are stripped of everything. To be reminded that we are loved absolutely, not because of what we have or what we've done, but because God is love. On the cross, Jesus was stripped of everything, and love was enough. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the hope of our faith. And we fast, trusting the feast that God prepares for us all. So today, at the start of Lent, we come to the table to share communion. 
the bread and the cup, they remind us of the life and the death of Jesus who was tempted in the ways that life tempts us all and who showed us what it looks like to trust always in the power of God's love. Communion is also a foretaste of the future that the prophets hoped for, the future that Jesus makes possible. It anticipates the day that the prophet Isaiah could foresee. This is from Isaiah 25. The day when the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a banquet of rich food, a banquet of fine wines. God will remove the mourning veil covering all peoples, the shroud covering all nations, and destroy all death forever. God will wipe away the tears from every cheek and will take away the shame of God's people on earth wherever they live. Communion anticipates that day, the day that we all hope for, the day when everyone finds a place, everyone belongs, everyone is welcome, everyone is safe, and everyone has what they need to thrive. And so in these next moments, as we prepare to come to the table, um, be truthful. Be truthful about yourself, what you've done, perhaps what you've left undone. Be clear-eyed about the world that we live in, and come trusting with all the faith that you can muster today. Come trusting in the power of God to make us and make all things new again. Amen.